Which, man, when you have brain surgery, that's something that we don't take lightly, do we? And um, sometimes when you think about our children that grow up, and here they are, 18 years old, and some of you are sending them off to Michigan or Michigan State or Iowa or Ohio State. I don't know what you know, state you're from. I'm from UCLA. And I would, you know, that's where our kids uh, grew up out in California. But it's, it's a little bit sobering to think about how quickly life uh, goes by. And so if you are here for the first time, welcome. We are glad that you're here. Sometimes we have moments of soberness like we have had this morning. And that's good. Uh, I think that there is a, a good place for us to have these moments where we get a little bit sober and our heart has moments to reflect. And then there's times where we raise the roof in joy. And sometimes we experience that as well. So if you're here for the first time, we invite you to come back because there will be hopefully opportunities for you to experience all of that uh, in the worship experience. I, <clears throat> I would like to give you two gifts this morning. Um, and he, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you two things. And these two things are hopefully gifts that you will have in the next 30 minutes, 35 minutes. I want you to leave with these two gifts, okay? Here's the first gift. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, person, uh, the lion from the Wizard of Oz. He's one of my favorite characters in the Wizard of Oz. I love this speech that he gives. Here's his speech. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast to wave? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hot and tot so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? What have they got that I ain't got? <laughs> Every time I read that, I have to laugh out loud. It's just a wonderful speech. And then... Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Woodsman, they all say together in unison, Courage! You can say that again, huh? <laughs> and this morning, I would like to give you some courage. If you respond to life like I do, I oftentimes will respond to what the lion in the Wizard of Oz says, I need courage for another day. I'd like to give that to you at the end of these 30 to 35 minutes that we spend together. The second thing I would like to give you this morning is I would like to give you some preparation. Some preparation. If you were supposedly going to have a baby, let's just imagine that you were going to hear that you were going to have a baby. And for some of us, that might be a little bit surprising. But what would you do if somebody came to you and said, you're going to have a baby in seven, eight months from now? What would you do? you would most likely prepare for that event. At least I would hope that you would prepare for that event. We are going to talk about a subject this morning that I think most of you don't want to talk about. And most of us resist this subject that we're going to look at in the next couple of minutes. When we talk about eschatology, and the word eschatology is a term that basically means we're going to talk about events that are coming up in the future. We have a timeline that we live in, and eschatology is talking about future events. My purpose this morning is not to scare you. My purpose is to prepare you. 
The Bible has an awful lot to say about future events. And I think we need to take that and realize that the Bible does not leave us in the dark about future events. And some of us say, you know what? I don't want to read the book of Revelation. I don't want to talk about future events because it just scares me. And I don't want to scare you. I want to prepare you because I believe that the Bible gives us glimpses of the future to prepare us, not to scare us. And I want to give you those two gifts, encouragement, and I also want to give you preparedness. I want to take two things from you this morning. And if I'm going to give you two gifts, I want you to release two things that I think you might have in your hands this morning. The first thing I'd like to take from you is I'd like to take your gun. I'd like to take your gun. Now, <clears throat> hear me out. Just hear me out. I know that some of you that are gun advocates, and I'm not wanting to take away the Second Amendment of our right to bear arms, okay? Just hear me out. I would like to take your gun from you because many of us have these thoughts in the back of our minds almost on a daily basis. We say to ourselves, I do, how about you? How long, God, until you do something? You say that in your heart? <laughs> if you watch the news and you watch a rapist that rapes young children and you say, when is God going to bring justice? When is God going to step in and do something? When is evil going to see its end? There's going to be a day when God's going to say one word, enough. It's coming. It's coming. Here's what the gun represents. The gun is a representation of our revenge towards evil. Because many of us will want to have revenge in our hearts and say, and rightfully so, it's a God-given place in our hearts to say there's justice. God will not allow this to go unpunished. He will bring a point when he will say enough. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 12, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God will someday make things right. Take the guns and let's not take revenge in our hearts towards evil. That's what we're going to take away this morning. Second thing I'd like to take away from you is I'd like to take your fingernails from you. I'd like you to take worry from you. Do you relate to this picture this morning? You watch the news, you see what's happening. We're in an election year, and they are saying that this election year has never, there's been nothing like it. We've never seen an election like this election. <laughs> and, and we're just kind of, you know, we're just kind of tearing, what's coming next, you know? In study of this text that we're going to look at this morning, I'd like to give, have you give up your gun and your worry, that is, your fingernails. Could you do that? Here's what we're going to do over the next 25 minutes, 30 minutes. We're going to look at a subject, friends. I'm going to be right up front with you, and I'm going to let you know that this subject that we're going to look at this morning is a very difficult subject. And some of you, I hope you haven't exited out yet, but some of you are going to um, listen and hear some things that are going to be here hard to listen to. 
And this subject that we're going to talk about over the next 30 minutes, 25 minutes, is going to be very difficult. It's going to be hard. I hope that you do not exit out from the hardness of it. I'm going to try and do the best I can to make it simple, but sometimes simplicity just cannot grasp the bigness of this theme of the seven-year tribulation period that is, we believe, future. And I'd like to suggest to you that the labor pains of Christ's second coming, the labor pains of Christ's second coming are going to be put into practice here in the future. I keep using this because I want you to go from left to right. I want you to see that there's a timeline. We've been talking about God's clock of the ages. We started back in Genesis, and we've been walking through all of the promises that God has given humanity. And we have seen how God gives us these promises. Now we come to this, this seven-year period. It's just seven years of some unbelievable events that, again, I don't want to scare you, but the Bible has a lot to say. And if you stay with me over the next few moments, I hope that you will get a clear picture of some of the events that will take place in the coming days. Why don't you do this? Take out your outline that was given to you in the bulletin. You'll see that there is a sermon outline entitled Series, God's Clock of the Ages. You'll find that on the back side is an outline, and there is a timeline that I'd like to just give you the big picture real quick. Take three minutes and give you the big picture of the timeline. You'll notice that on this timeline, there is the church, the body of Christ, we saw last week that we are the church, the body of Christ. This is language that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the church today. Not a building. You and I, Gentile and Jews, are on equal ground and we make up the body. Notice that June 2016, with question marks behind it, what is the future of the church? We believe, and I'm going to suggest to you this morning, that the next event... The next eschatological event that God talks about in the Bible is a rapture for the church today. And you'll see that there's a, uh, a, an arrow that goes up in the word rapture there. We're going to see from the Bible that there is an event. The word rapture is never used in the Bible. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul will lay out for us some specific details about what that rapture is. I want you to notice on this timeline that the rapture and the second coming, we believe, are two separate events. And there are some very strong descriptions of these two events and why they're separate. We believe that when the rapture happens and the church can be called up any moment in the future and we are raptured up, God will then begin dealing with the nation of Israel in their 70th week of Daniel. And we're going to look at some passages this morning to describe what that 70th week is. This 70th week, seven-year period, is divided up in Daniel's prophecy into two halves, three and a half and three and a half. Jesus will make a wonderful proclamation in Matthew 24 and describe this seven-year period, I believe, in Matthew 24, almost like a timeline, and I'll show it to you in a couple of moments. It's wonderful. Jesus was very specific, but very consistent with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, and his revelation in Matthew 24 fits in with the book of Revelation like a hand in a glove. And you're going to see, I believe, that this seven-year period 
is directed towards the Jewish church. And I use the Jewish church here purposely. The bride of Christ. We are not called the bride, the body of Christ. We are called the body of Christ. The bride of Christ is Israel. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Their climax of salvation comes in our timeline. Look at the second coming. Jesus Christ will come back at the end of these seven years in a climax when he will put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He'll go into the city of Jerusalem and establish a kingdom that will bring shalom to not only Israel, but to the nations. It's a wonderful, wonderful proclamation of what God reveals to us in the scriptures. So that, my friend, is an overview of some of the big picture of what we want to look at and talk about in these next few moments. The events of the seven-year tribulation period prepare us for joy. Jesus will use the illustration of these days being like the birthing pains of a woman. If you're in birth, if you're going into birth and a woman has birthing pains, those pains will get stronger and stronger and stronger until there's a point where there will be the birth of the child. And those birthing pains, Jesus will use this description, will be how he describes this seven-year period of birthing pains becoming greater and greater and greater until the joy of Jesus Christ comes down and he reveals himself as their Messiah. Having shared some of that as background, let's now look at five different characteristics of this wonderful, and I will call it wonderful, time of seven years of judgment upon the nation of Israel and the nations. Let's look at the first. If you're taking notes, you'll notice here the first characteristic. The first three deal with the church, the body of Christ. These last two will be specific. We'll deal with the nation of Israel, the Jewish church. The first observation. The church, the body of Christ, that is you and I, are indwelt by the Spirit, holding back evil and the revealing of the lawless one, the Antichrist. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to read a couple of key passages that will hopefully give you some biblical uh, information to continue to study this text, these texts out. We don't have time to go specific in the details, so I want to give you the big picture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you follow along as I read verse 5 through 11? Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back. And what Paul is talking about here in the verses before, he's talking about one who's going to reveal himself as the Antichrist. Paul is talking here about the Antichrist, and he's giving specific details about who this personified evil one will be like. Look at verse 6. And you know now what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus, look at this, will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan 
displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have enlightened, been enlightened in wickedness. We find here that the Antichrist is going to be revealed when he is taken out. Who's the he here? We believe that the he here is the Holy Spirit who is holding back evil. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we came to faith in the Lord Jesus. We were baptized into Christ. And now every believer, if you believe in Christ, God places you by the Spirit into Christ without human hands, but with the divine hands of the Spirit. He baptizes you into the body of Christ, and we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When the rapture takes place, the Spirit of God, we believe, will take the church, the body of Christ, and remove us out of the world. And when that happens, the Antichrist will be revealed. I think that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. It's interesting that this Antichrist is given specific details. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, you might want to jot this passage down. Let's not turn there. Let me just read these verses for you. The beast, that is the Antichrist, had a loud, a loud mouth, boastful and blasphemous. It could do anything it wanted for 42 months. And in the book of Revelation, 42 months is three and a half years, approximately. It yelled blasphemies against God, blasphemies against his name, blasphemies against his church, especially those already dwelling with God in heaven. God takes the church, brings us up into the heavens, and now he's going to deal with the Antichrist and with the nation of Israel. It goes on. It was permitted to make war on God's holy people, I think Israel, and conquer them. It held absolute sway over all tribes and peoples, tongues and races. Everyone on earth whose name was not written from the world's foundation in the slaughtered Lamb's book of life will worship the beast. The beast will be one who will rule over the whole world and he will have control over the world for a very, very short time. But just like Jesus was the personification of deity in his coming, this Antichrist will be the personification of evil. We want to see what evil will look like. The Antichrist will be the personification of it. There's a second characteristic to this time here. And in your notes, let's move on to number two. The church, the body of Christ, us, will be rescued from the coming wrath. Turn back a page or two to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Look at two verses here in 1 Thessalonians. By the way, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, both of these books are written with the theme of eschatology. And so there's some themes here that we need to realize as we read through these two books from, of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Let's go back to... Um, Verse 9, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Verse 10, and we wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who what? He rescues us from the coming wrath. Skip over to chapter 5, verse 9 of the same book. Chapter 5, verse 9, Paul will say it again. Chapter 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, 
but to receive salvation from our Lord Jesus Christ. The church, the body of Christ, us, we believe that we have been saved from the coming wrath that will be poured out during this period of time. And we believe that Paul is referring here, the same word for wrath that he uses in 1 Thessalonians is the same word that's going to be used in the book of Revelation when God pours out his wrath upon humanity during that time of tribulation, during the seven-year tribulation. We have been saved from the wrath to come. God will say, enough. Look at the third characteristic here of this period in preparation for it. Again, we're looking at us, the church, the body of Christ. So in your notes, please note, and I, I hope that you're taking notes. I hope you're not doing your geometry. <laughs> uh, I know you got classes that are coming up, but I hope that you're still with me. Are you with me? Okay, third characteristic. Stay with me. The church, the body of Christ, number three, will be caught up together with believers who have fallen asleep in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. And look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. This is the classic passage that Paul, we believe, describes the rapture for us. Look at what he says. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other, encourage one another with these words. This is what Paul will talk about in Titus as the blessed hope of the believer. We are gathered with those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ. The scripture never refers to death for the believer as death because Christ died for us. We fall asleep in Christ. My brother Donnie died when he was at 18 years old. He believed that Jesus died for his sins. And I believe that his profession of faith put him in Christ. And because he died in Christ, if Christ comes back this next week, Donnie's soul will be united with his new body and he will be resurrected and he will go first and then I will follow him and we together will meet in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will be with him forever. That's the promise for the body of Christ, the church that you and I are a part of. That's what we look forward to. And notice here that we do not meet Jesus here on earth. The Bible tells us, Paul says, that we are citizens of the heavens. I believe that the church, the body of Christ, will be resurrected, and we will be resurrected into the heavens, and we will spend eternity from there. By the way, in Revelation, there is a war that happens halfway through the seven-year period, and Lucifer gets kicked out of heaven. There's a war that takes place in the heavens. 
The church, the body of Christ, is lifted up and we are taken up into the heavens. And Paul says, and we will live, therefore, in courage. Find courage. Find courage, not from a lion, but from the lion. Be encouraged with that. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Know that this is true. And so these three characteristics really focus in on the church, the body of Christ, you and I. But now, let's do this. Look at two characteristics that get very specific about this time. Look at number four and number five in your notes. The fourth characteristic. The day of the Lord, that is the Jewish church, the bride, the day of the Lord consists of great suffering and blessings. The suffering will be as labor pains of a pregnant woman for Israel's priestly purification. Take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 24. As you're turning to Matthew 24, and I hope I haven't lost you. I'm not hearing a whole lot of Bibles turning. Maybe you're writing. I hope that you're still with me. I know this is heavy. I know that there's a lot here. Some of you are saying, I can't keep up. Stay with me. Please stay with me. There's a lot here for us to chew on. We're not going to solve it all in 35 minutes. I guarantee you. This is going to take a lifetime of study. So grab what you can. In Matthew 24 here, Jesus is going to describe, I believe, the seven-year tribulation period, and I can prove this to you very simply. And I want you to know that it's very simple here as you look at Matthew 24. Verses 3 and following. Daniel chapter 9 will reveal to us the three and a half and the three and a half. And what separates these two three and a halves is that there is a desolation that happens in the middle that Jesus is going to refer to in Matthew 24. Look at verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, that is in Jerusalem, in the temple, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. The disciples wanted to know about future events, so Jesus answered. In verse 15, he makes it very specific. This is what Daniel spoke about in Daniel 9. And he tells us where it comes from, the prophecy. It's Daniel. So look at verse 20, chapter 24, verse 15. That's the middle of Daniel's revelation in Daniel 9. Now go back in the text. Look at what he does in chapter 24, verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, Israel, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, all these are but what? The birthing pains that are just beginning. First three and a half years, the birthing pains have started. Look at what he says in verse 9. Then you, Israel, will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated Jews by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he, look at this phrase, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Israel, if you stand firm through these seven years and you don't give up, you will be saved. And what is their salvation? 
Their salvation is the coming of their Messiah at the end of these seven years. So hold on, Israel. The birthing pains are going to increase, but you hold on and you keep trusting. You believe the promises that I have told you in the Old Testament. And if you hold on, you'll see your salvation. You see that? And then what does he do in verse 15? And then when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, the Antichrist in the middle of the seven-year period, will turn against the nation of Israel. He will have a covenant with Israel for three and a half years. They will be buddy-buddy. The Antichrist will say, Israel, you're my friend. And they will have a covenant for three and a half years. And in the middle, he will turn their back. He will turn his back on Israel. And he will pursue them. And he will try and annihilate them. Because Lucifer has lost his place in the heavens. He's been cast down to earth. And the Bible says in Revelation, he knows... Lucifer knows that his time is short, so he's after God's people, Israel. And now, look at what the text does. In verse 16, I believe that Jesus describes the second half of the tribulation period. Here's the three and a half years at the end. Let's read it. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea, again, it's all about Israel, you flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Verse 18, let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of God's elect Israel, those days will be shortened. Can I just put a, an interpretation here? If Jesus Christ would not step in, humanity would annihilate itself. And you and I know exactly what that means today. We have the power to annihilate ourselves if we had the power to do that. We have been able to come up with bombs that can destroy not only the earth once or twice. We can destroy it a number of times over through our knowledge because we think we're so smart. Yeah, we're smart. But left to our evil ways, we would destroy. And Jesus warns here, if God would not step in, they would annihilate themselves. This is how intense the birthing pains will be in this last three and a half years for Israel during this time. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect Israel, those days would be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles and deceive even the elect, Israel, if that were possible. But God in the book of Revelation has promised that there's 144,000 Jews that during this time will not bend the knee to worship the Antichrist. And that's what the book of Revelation describes. See, I've told you, verse 25, I've told you ahead of time. And then what Jesus will do, you read the rest of chapter 24 and 25, I believe that he describes for us the rest of the three and a half years that will give us, and he gives us the ultimate description of the end of that when Jesus Christ comes back at the end of that seven-year period. And there you've got Israel's salvation at the end of this purification of this priestly nation called Israel. Look at the fifth characteristic that we have in our notes. Israel the bride during this seven-year purification will be miraculously protected and provided for by God. 
Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Revelation. You probably knew that we would eventually get there. Because the book of Revelation, I believe, is a description for the nation of Israel, the bride, for this seven-year period of suffering that they're going to go through. I do not believe that the book of Revelation is written specifically to the church, the body of Christ. The church, the body of Christ, is raptured out, and then God will pick up again with the nation of Israel. And the book of Revelation is not a scary book. It's a book of promise that Jesus Christ will overcome through the nation of Israel during this seven-year period. It's a wonderful proclamation of preparation, not only for Israel, but for us, the rest of the nations. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. The woman here is Israel. You'll see this in a moment. She was pregnant, this woman, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, his first coming, so that he might devour her. That is, Lucifer wanted to devour this child that was born to Israel. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to the throne. So we find here that the first coming was part of God's plan. He became a child in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. He was born, and Lucifer tried to destroy him a number of times, remember? At an early age, he tried to kill him when he was just a young child. So we know that there was a spiritual war that Lucifer was out to try and kill this incarnate one, Jesus Christ. But God snatched him up and ascended him up to heaven. Now look at what the passage says in verse 6. The woman, that is Israel, fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days or three and a half years. This same 1,260 days in the text will be made reference to, not with 1,260 days, but times, times and a half, and times, in other words, three and a half years. You'll find that the war that takes place in heaven is here in verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. Don't miss it. He'll tell you exactly who he is. The ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, who leads the whole world. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then we find the middle of the book of Revelation. The blood of the lamb gives Israel the hope that this is their Messiah. And if you continually read, you'll see the rest of the story by way of the next three and a half years of tribulation. Can I take you to chapter 16 real quick? And I just want to show you that in chapter 16, and I know we've covered a lot of material here, we have the seven bowls of God's wrath. And here is where God will pour out his wrath, and God will say enough. He will pour out his wrath on the land, chapter 16, verse 2. He will pour out his wrath on the sea, verse 3. He will pour out his wrath on the rivers and water, verse 4. He will pour out his wrath on the the sun, verse 8, he will pour out his wrath in verse 10 on the animal kingdom. 
He will pour out his wrath in, on verse 12 on the river Euphrates. And you say, why would God do this? Because God is a holy and God is a righteous God. And there's a time and a place for the judgment of God to fall. I'd like to read verse 17 through 21 for us as we bring this to a close. Follow along. This is from the message in some words that we might be able to understand. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17 says, The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air. From the throne in the temple came a shout, Done. Followed by lightning flashes and shouts, thunder crashes and a colossal earthquake. A huge and devastating earthquake. Never an earthquake like it since time began. God is going to take the earth. He's going to shake it like never before. And he's going to cleanse it. He's going to continue in the passage. The great city split three ways. That is the city of Jerusalem. The cities of the nations toppled to ruin. Great Babylon had to drink. And Babylon is the world system of the evil one. Great Babylon had to drink the wine of God's raging anger. God remembered to give her the cup. Every island fled and not a mountain was to be found. Hailstones weighing a ton plummeted, crushing and smashing men and women as they cursed God for the hail, the epic disaster of hail. And these, my friends, I believe are the birthing pains that bring the conclusion. Turn over to chapter 19 and here's the conclusion. We don't have time to read it. But I'd like you to read Revelation chapter 19. Please do not be afraid of the book of Revelation. It is a book of preparation for us. Read chapter 19 and you have the climax of the second coming of Christ where Jesus will come back and he will come on a white horse. He will not come as a lamb to be slaughtered. He will come as a king to rule over Israel and the rest of the nations. This is what I would like to give you this morning. Courage by what you've heard. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Be encouraged with these words. I know this is a heavy subject. I know some of you have exited out. I know some of you say, you know what, I'm not interested. Just let me live today. And we live with our parameters like this. And God never intended us to live this way. Like a horse going down the path with this blinders on. He wanted us to live with the big picture in mind. Don't be afraid to embrace the future events of what God has promised in his word. Be encouraged. Be prepared. The church is going to be raptured up soon. Realize that the time is short. Paul thought it was going to happen in his day. I believe with all my heart that we are moving very quickly to possibly the day when the church will be raptured up soon. That's what we're looking for. And when we are taken up, then God will deal again with the nation of Israel. And God's got this. Give up your gun. Realize that God will bring judgment someday. We do not have to be the ones that judge. Let God do that. And also, rest in the promises here. And don't worry. Continue to watch the news. Continue to be informed. Don't put your head in the sand. I don't believe that believers need to hide in the sand. Please vote this next election. Dare us not vote. We have a freedom in our world that the world has never seen Please vote, and I don't care who you vote for, but just vote and take the freedoms that God has given you to do that. I pity the church today that says, politics and religion do not mix, and I say to that, hogwash. 
Jesus Christ is involved in politics to the very nth degree. And I believe that we need to be well informed. And we need not put our head in the sand. So vote. Stay informed, but don't worry. Cast your cares upon him. Believe that he's got this. And put your faith in Christ and let grace trump everything that you and I face, even brain surgery. And when the world goes through their brain surgery, God will have it. Because Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, oh, what a day that will be. I hope your soul yearns for that. If it doesn't, we need to do more study in eschatology. Because that's the hope that God gives us. Oh, God, help us to be people of grace, to have courage, and to be prepared. Give up your guns and give up your worry. God's got this.